reading from the Gospel of Mark. And let me ask that you do this instead of trying to track with me. How about just kind of bow your heads in a reflective way. Try to picture the scene that is before us this evening. The chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus. They led him away, and they delivered him to Pilate. Pilate said, What then do you want me to do with him, who you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? And they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, willing to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them and delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. And they clothed him with purple. And they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him and bowed him the knee they worshipped him. And when they mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. And they brought him to the place, Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. And they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what each man should take. That was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With him they crucified two robbers, one on the right, the other on the left. Though the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with his transgressors. And those who passed blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put her on a reed and offered to him to drink, saying, Let him alone, let's see if Elijah will come down to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice, and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
So when the centurion, who stood opposite him, <coughs> saw that he cried out like this, and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Had you been standing there, you would have no doubt said something is happening at Calvary. Anybody in the town of Jerusalem would have said something is happening at Calvary. And probably some of them would have looked on it and thought it was some sort of a tragedy, some sort of a horrible accident. This could not be what was planned. Tragic. And yet that's not what happened at Calvary. Some would look at it and say, surely this, this is not the way Jesus expected it to go. This was an unexpected end to a wonderful but short career. But there was nothing unexpected about it. Didn't take anybody by surprise. At least didn't take God or Jesus by surprise. That's not what happened at Calvary. Some might look at it and say, here he had this wonderful ministry of three years, walking about doing good, wonderful miracles, raising people from the dead, all these things, and then to see it come to failure now. Some would look at it and say, his ministry, his life ended in failure, but that's not what happened at Calvary. Some, even today, would look at it and say, well, he was like so many others, a martyr dying for a cause, another good man who gave his life for a very good, a very good cause, and yet <laughs> that was not what happened at Calvary. Something was happening at Calvary. But it was not something that we could have devised. It was not something that mankind could have thought of. It was something incredible. It was something unbelievable. As a matter of fact, Isaiah, hundreds of years before, in chapter 53 and verse number 1, said, Who has believed our report? This is an unbelievable thing. Nobody would believe it if we were to tell. Oh, human minds could come up with some of it. They could come up with the physical part. Humanity is pretty good at coming up with horrible ways to destroy people. And that part of it, no doubt, a human could have come up with. But what really happened? No. It took God to think that up. Because what really happened there was something unbelievable. Let me share with you three words, just for a few minutes tonight. Three words that I think might help us to see what was happening at Calvary. The first word is the word justice. Justice. Something's happening at Calvary, and it is justice. You know, if you read your Bibles very much, and I certainly hope you do, if you read your Bibles very much, you know that God is described in various ways in the Bible. There are characteristics of God. There are what Bible scholars would call attributes of God. God is love. That's one of the characteristics of God. God is merciful. God is omnipresent. Big $100 word that means everywhere present at once. He is omniscient, means he knows everything. He is omnipotent, means he is all-powerful. God can do anything. He is just, righteous, holy. He always does the right thing. Now, if you think about that list, and that's not all of the attributes of God, that's just a few, but if you think about that list, you know, there's... The first few of them we really kind of like. We, we want them to be true of us, don't we? I mean, we really like that one, God is love. Not too many people ever bark against that one. Not too many turns away from that. 
I am so glad that my Father in heaven tells of his love in the book he has given. Wonderful things in the Bible I see. This is the dearest that Jesus loves me. Whoever complains about that truth about God, we, we want that to be true. We like that attribute of God. And, and we like the little omni-attributes sometimes, don't we? We like the fact, we like to think about the fact that God is everywhere present at once, especially when we're going through a difficult situation and we need him to be there. We like that attribute. There's a best-selling Christian poem. Some of you probably have it in your home. You see it in doctor's offices and stores and, and uh, offices and churches. It's called Footprints in the Sand. And that's exactly what it's telling us. He's always there. He's always there when we need him. And we like that. And we want him to know everything. And we rejoice in the fact sometimes that he knows our hurts, that he knows our pains and our troubles and our sorrows. So we like that particular one sometimes. And there are times, are there not, when we really rejoice in the fact that he is omnipotent, that he is all-powerful. There are times when we hear things that we really need a big problem-solving God to fix. And don't we thank the Lord at those times that he is such. But what about that last one? That last one on the list I read to you, we don't really like that one to be true all the time, do we? That one that says God is just. He is just. We don't really want God to be just, when it comes to us at least. We want him to be just when it comes to the other guy. When somebody else has committed some crime. Just recently, T.J. Lane, young murderer of kids at Chardon High School was convicted of three life sentences. Imagine if the judge had stood before T.J. Lane and said, no, I'm a just God, but I'm also, or a just judge, but I'm also a, a loving judge. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you some love today, T.J. I'm going to let you go. Everyone on the planet would have howled in outrage. Because we believe in justice, don't we? When it comes to the other guy. Richard Beasley was recently convicted of first-degree murder in the Craigslist murder trial in Akron. And uh, we believe in justice and things like that. We understand the value of it. Oh, but we want mercy when it's us that's standing before the bar, don't we? And the fact is, we all will stand before the bar. Hebrews 9.27 does say it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Hebrews 10.30 does say the Lord will judge his people. And we all have that appointment before that judge, that omnipresent judge who has been everywhere we've ever gone, heard everything we've ever heard, seen everything we've ever looked at. He is omniscient. He knows what we are. He knows all. And he is just. And he must judge sin. So what was happening on Calvary? That's what was happening on Calvary. Justice. Justice. What happened on Calvary was that God punished Jesus in my place and in your place. We were guilty of sin. The Bible doesn't let anybody off the hook. All have sinned, the Bible says. There is none righteous. We fall right in there. And the Bible also says that God's justice demanded a price be paid for sin. The soul that sins, it must die. See, I couldn't pay the price for my sin because to do so I would have had to die. And I certainly couldn't stand in, 
in, in your place and pay the price for your sin. I was too busy paying for mine. Only one who had no sin. Only one who didn't have to deal with that on his own could stand in my place. Only Jesus. Listen to this verse from Romans. Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set, set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Did you get that last part? All this was done. That he might be just and also the justifier of you and me. Able to be just and justify us at the same time. How could God be just without punishing me for my sin and you for yours? Only by punishing another. Only by the death of Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones said Christ died upon the cross for no reason except this. It had to happen. It was an absolute necessity. There was no other way whereby man could be forgiven. Henry Thiessen said God cannot pardon sin merely on the ground of the sinner's repentance. That would be impossible for a righteous God to do. God can pardon only when the penalty is first paid. In order that God might be able to pardon a sinner and to remain righteous at the same time, Christ paid the sinner's penalty. Something's happening at Calvary. Let your eyes see it. Let your mind comprehend it. Let your heart feel it. Let your soul shudder at it. It is the justice of God. Justice. Something else was happening at Calvary. Second word. And that's the word Substitution. Substitution. That's a similar thought to the last word, but wonderfully more picturesque thought. Substitution. It is true Jesus was punished for my sin. Yes, it is true Jesus paid my sin debt. But even more plainly stated, Jesus was my substitute. We might say, and I don't think we'd do any harm to the scripture to say that Jesus was me on that cross. He was you on that cross. We sang it earlier. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Substitute. A couple verses of scripture. Isaiah chapter 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You remember the sacrificial system in the Old Testament? Hundreds of animals slain. Thousands, maybe maybe millions of animals slain to make atonement for people's sin. And you remember that they would place their hand upon the head of the animal and then the animal would be slain. And the placing of the hand was symbolically transferring their guilt onto the animal, which was then slain in their place. Substitution. Christ on Calvary became my substitute and your substitute. The Lord laid my iniquity, your iniquity, on him. He bore my sin, your sin. Something was happening at Calvary and it was substitution. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God 
in him. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Hebrews 9.28, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Martin Lloyd-Jones again said the Lord Jesus Christ suffered the penalty of the broken law vicariously as the substitute for his people. God who is just can forgive sin because he has punished sin in the person of his only begotten son. He remains righteous. He remains just. He has done to sin what he said he would do. And yet, because he has done it in the substitute, he can forgive us. He can justify us who believe in Jesus. And now because he has stood in my place, because he has been my substitute and was punished for my sins, I'm forgiven. You're forgiven. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, Paul said to the Ephesians. Because he was my substitute on Calvary, I have peace. You have peace. By him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Because of what happened on Calvary, my sins have been purged. Purged. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins. What a great word. Think about that word for a minute. My sins have been purged. We sang it a little bit ago, that wonderful old hymn by Bernard of Clairvaux. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor, vouchsafe to me thy grace. Can you see it? Something is happening at Calvary. Something amazing. How do we not fall on our knees and worship over it? How do we not weep fountains of tears when we think about the fact the Savior died as our substitute in our place, bearing our sins, all of them, every one of them, so that we never would have to do so? And if you're not yet a believer tonight, if you've not yet believed to the saving of your soul how do you not right now fly to the foot of the bloody cross and receive the salvation that is available to you there? Substitution. One other thing was happening at Calvary that I'll mention to you tonight. And that is this. Love. Love was happening at Calvary. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us John said behold what manner of love the father has bestowed on us he said by this we know love because he laid down his life for us and this is love not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation the satisfaction for our sins. Oh, what wondrous love is this. Oh, my soul. Oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this. Oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. For my soul. To bear the dreadful curse for my soul.
One man said, is there anything greater than this? That God should take your sins and mine and put them on his own son and punish his own son, not sparing him anything, causing him to suffer all that, that you and I might be forgiven. Can you tell me any greater exhibition of the love of God than that?